Hello everyone, welcome back to Conspiracies in Milk with you girl, Smoking Lioness. I'm not going to waste any time, we're going to go ahead and go on to the next part of our Fallen versus Aliens, uh, trying to bring light, trying to bring some understanding to y'all. Uh, so this next part, we're going to listen to Chuck Missler uh, talk about aliens and Nephilim and show you the language that's used and try and create an understanding so that you can understand that all this disclosure and everything has to do with the times that we are in and without further ado you guys know I might chime in here and there that's just what I do but let's go ahead and take a listen this is only going to take about 25-30 minutes of your time thank you all for listening I will be listening with you let's get started very mysterious shiny lights have police and residents puzzled. This pilot who flew Barack Obama says UFOs are real and he's seen one firsthand. The triangular shaped flashing object appears to be floating above the capital city. So this large disc. Oh yeah. Massive. It was following you. It was pacing us. Here's this giant red ball just above the clouds. Unbelievable. Oh, it was. Four species, four different species, at least, have been visiting this planet for thousands of years. What you really need to do to get a handle on the UFO thing, strangely enough, is to do your homework in Genesis chapter 6. And I want, I want you to notice the first two verses, and I want you to pay attention that the first two verses are a single sentence. Many people stumble because they don't realize it's a single sentence. I'll just see why I'm, coming, why I'm getting ahead in a minute. Genesis 6, verse 1. And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the Benaiha Elohim, the sons of God, as it's translated, saw the daughters of men, that they were fair. And they took them wives of all which they chose. One verse. Now the question is, um, this strange phrase, sons of God, uh, that can mean anything to us. Let's find out what the text really means, sons of God. What it is in the Hebrew is, remember Hebrew goes from right to left, so if you're watching the slides here, uh, remember all languages go towards Jerusalem. Nations that are east of Jerusalem go from right to left, the language. Nations that are west of Jerusalem go from left to right. So just break so Hebrew, Aramaic, Arabic, uh, Sanskrit, whatever, they go right to left. Anyway, uh, so if you're reading the Hebrew here, recognize it goes from right to left. Beneha Elohim, sons of the God. Now, sons of God, Beneha Elohim is, is a term that's always used of a direct creation of God. Adam was a direct creation of God. You and I, in the natural, are not. We're sons of Adam. That's our problem. That's what the book of Romans is all about. And, uh, but as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. The term is, has technical meaning in the New Testament as well as the Old. In the Old Testament, this term in the Hebrew, in Job 1.6, Job 2.1, Job 38.7, uh, is always used of angels, because they are a direct creation of God. In the New Testament, also Luke 20.36. 
Also, the book of Enoch. Now, I'm, don't misunderstand my use of this as a, as a citation here. The book of Enoch was very popular from about the 2nd century before Christ and the 2nd century after. It is not an inspired book. I wouldn't treat it that way. But it is useful in understanding the vocabulary and the grammar of the time. And clearly, the book of Enoch, this term is used there also to refer to angels. It deals with it greatly. The Septuagint, and the Septuagint also makes it clear that we're dealing here with uh, uh, angels, as we think of them. Now, in Genesis 6, it came to pass when men began to multiply in the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wise of all whom they chose. The word sons of God, of course, in Benai Elohim, sons of God, direct creation, term for angels, saw the daughters of men. Now, by the way, what that really says in the Hebrew is Benat Adam, daughters of Adam. Now, when you get down to verse 4 of Genesis 6, it says, there were Nephilim in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became the mighty men which were of old, men of renown. What this verse seems to indicate is that these Nephilim were offspring of a strange union. The sons of God, these are angels according to the Hebrew the, the, the precision here. They came in unto the daughters of men. Daughters of Adam, incidentally. This is not just Cain and Seth and any of that. This is the daughter, these, these are daughters of men. And they bear children to them. It's those children that are the Nephilim. Now what on earth is the Nephilim? That word, Nephilim, is a key word. We're going to talk a lot about that. Nephilim means the fallen ones. It comes from the verb nephal, which means to fall, be cast down, to fall away, to desert. That's what a Nephilim is, a deserter, in a sense. What the passage portrays, and it's very difficult for many people to absorb this, it portrays fallen angels. These are not the good guys. Remember when Satan fell, a third of the angels fell with him. Not all of them, but a group of them, apparently, and we'll talk more about this in a minute, chose to try to create a hybrid race by cohabit. By, by, I don't know the technology. Uh, I, I'm not going to get into that. But they apparently uh, uh, were... See, angels can't multiply. Angels are eternal. There's a, reproduction is a process for mortals. But at the same time, Satan's got a problem. A third of the angels fell with him, so he's got a deficiency of two to one in any war that comes in, right? He's got to find a, find a way to strengthen himself. This may be, this is just a, a, a conjecture that floats around. Now, the offspring are Nephilim. They're also called the Hagibarim, the mighty ones. And uh, now, where the confusion starts to set in is when this Hebrew passage was translated into the Greek in the Septuagint. Amen. The word they used for the Nephilim was gigantes. It sounds like giants, and it turns out they were giants, but that's not what the word means. Amen. Gigantes comes from gigas, which means earthborn. So in the Hebrew, they're called the fallen ones. In the Greek, they're called the earthborn. And uh, so let's keep that in mind. The fact that they were giants is like a pun. Yes, they were giants, but that's not what the word means. It carries a different meaning. Let's go on a little further in verse 9 of Genesis 6. It says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. Terrific verse. We've all read it. But most of us 
may not pay attention to what that's really saying. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. What does that mean? Well, the word perfect in the Hebrew is tamim. What it means is without blemish, sound, healthful, without spot, unimpaired. What that verse seems to indicate is that Noah's genealogy was unblemished. Now this comes on right after the verses that talk about these strange goings on where these fallen angels are, have created some weird form of hybrid. But Noah was unblemished in his gen gen generations and that's one of the reasons that God chose Noah and his three sons and their four wives to start over again. The purpose of the flood was not just that there was sin in the land. There was, and that's emphasized. But if, if, if sin brings the flood, we better get some life jackets. No, there's something far deeper going on. That's what I want to sensitize you for when you do your own study and come to your own conclusions. But I want you to recognize there's something much more profound that God, it's a problem that God was solving. And that is that Satan's strategy was to contaminate the human race. When you get to the book of Jude, Jude makes an allusion to this very event in Jude verses 6 and 7. Jude is just one chapter. But verses 6 and 7, Jude writes, And the angels, by the way, this is in the Greek, so it's not ambiguous. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of that great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah, and the cities about them in like manner giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Jude is talking about judgment on the bad guys. And he mentions among these things, these angels which sinned back in Genesis 6. These angels kept not the first estate, but left their own habitation. He hath reserved in everlasting chains. These angels that participated in Genesis 6 apparently are chained awaiting a special judgment. We'll talk, it's going to, Peter's going to talk about that in a minute. And even, even uh, Jude asks to add something else here. He makes a comparison between the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah and the sins of these angels in that they were doing that which is unnatural. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. He's using that as an additional exemplar, lumping the angels with him. The angels went after strange flesh, so did the Sodom and Gomorrah. They're both reserved for special judgment. You follow me? You can read it and check it out yourself. That's one confirmation. That's in Jude. Let's take a look at See, they left their own habitation. We're going to come back to that in a minute. And going after strange flesh is the, is the illusion here. Let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. 2 Peter. In Peter's second letter, he says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to Tartarus, it's translated hell in your English Bible, but the Greek word is Tartarus. It's the only place that word appears in the Bible. I'll come back to that. If God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to Tartarus, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved of judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, and he goes on. So Peter does a couple of things here. He again alludes to the angels that sinned. They're cast into Tartarus. That's a, I'll tell you more about that in a minute. And they're reserved unto, for a final judgment. And spared not the old world, but saved Noah. In other words, he ties that event the days of Noah. 
So he not only confirms Genesis 6, but he also links it to the days of Noah. Okay. The word Tartarus deserves some comment. The problem with this word is it doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible, but it does appear in Greek literature. It's the Greek term for the dark abode of woe. It is a pit of darkness in the unseen world. It shows up, in, for example, in Homer's Iliad, where Tartarus is as far below Hades as the earth is below heaven. So where's Tartarus? I don't know, and I don't want to find out. So Tartarus was a term for a deep, special, it, is so, it, it was regarded as, as far below Hades as the earth is below heaven. So it's, it's where these angels are chained until, until the final thing. Now, if you study Greek, classic Greek mythology, you run into the Titans. These, these creatures in, their myth, in the legends of the myth myths were partly terrestrial and partly celestial. They rebelled against their father Uranus. And after a prolonged contest were defeated by Zeus and condemned where? Into Tartarus. Do you see a parallel brewing here? I'm going to suggest to you that the legends of the ancient Greeks embody the truth of what really happened in the past. That there were these strange creatures sharing hybrids that the Greek called titans. And we see that Zeus in many forms. We see, we see uh, Atlas and Hercules. Atlas and Hercules from, from Greek mythology were what would be called in the Hebrew Nephilim, offspring of an intermarriage between a god and a woman. And uh, so, now these legends, we, we obviously we see in the Sumer culture, in Assyria, in Egypt, I'll show you a few things, in the Incas, the Mayan, the epic of Gilgamesh, in the Persian mythology, and certainly in the Greek mythology, which most of us as products of Western civilization are familiar with. Also in India, Bolivia, South Sea Islands. Every one of these cultures, and the American Indians, every one of these cultures have legends of the star people. These people that came, these gods or demigods, whatever, came and cohabited with women and produced, produced hybrids. I discovered from some uh, apparent experts in the American Indian culture that this business of holding a hand up saying how, that's Hollywood. Uh, but what apparently was the practice when they met a stranger was to hold up the hand so they could count fingers. They had a terror of the six-fingered people. And if you go to uh, the ruins in Chaca, New Mexico, one, they have a, one of the exhibits there that you want to take a look at are the famous pictographs. And among those pictographs, you'll find the, the fearsome six-fingered hand as part of that. I came across something else that's kind of in the Pawnee Indians have an account that Bill, you remember um, Buffalo Bill, real name was William Cody. He wrote his autobiography in 1920. Very colorful guy. You can get his book. It's popular. But there's an interesting quote in his book by, Bill, by Buffalo Bill, Bill Cody, uh, published in 1920. He says, while we were in the Sand Hills scouting the Niobara uh, country, the Pawnee Indians brought into camp some very large bones, one of which the surgeon of the expedition pronounced to be the thigh bone of a human being. The Indians said the bones were those of a race of people who long ago had lived in that country. They said these people were three times the size of a man of the present day. And they were so swift and strong that they could run by the side of a buffalo and taking the animal in one arm could tear off a leg and eat it as they ran. 
I don't know what to make of that. It's in his autobiography. It's published in 1920. Uh, I don't think he was worried about UFOs and stuff, but you, it is a uh, interesting allusion to the Indian, Indian lessons. Uh, in the uh, early country, Ashur, they, they always speak of the flying god of Ashur. This diagram you see in many, many of the ancient uh, monuments of uh, a man with a bow, sort like Nimrod perhaps, and um, the uh, and the wings. Uh, and you see this on the monuments. Here's an example of them. As you go through Egypt, this is a, a snapshot in one of the tombs. Of, I think it's Ramesses the second, but you see it all of them. You'll notice on the headers of these uh, of, of these passages. Again, you see uh, uh, the way a flying disc. Again and again and again, uh, as you go through Egypt, you look at the, the headers on many of these monuments. You look up there and you always see the flying disc, sometimes with a snake involved. And uh, you see it again and again and again. Sometimes you see uh, uh, a person involved with these and you even find the disc being transported from place to place. So this seems to be something more than simply a symbol of a... Um, of, a, of a, some icon that they're worshiping. The point I want to get across, it startled me to realize that this is not simply a study in Old Testament ancient history. It is essential to understand, if you're going to understand your Bible, understand prophecy. You need to understand there were, there were Nephilim, Nephilim after the flood. In Genesis 4 it says there were, there were uh, Nephilim in those days and also after that, even hints at it right there. In Genesis 14 and 15, we discover there are four tribes at least, the Rephaim, the Emim, the Harim, and the Zamzumim, that Joshua was instructed to wipe out every man, woman, and child. Boy, that sounds like genocide. It was. Because we had the same thing, not a flood this time, it was a local situation. And uh, Arba, Anak, and the seven sons, the Anakim, are talked about not just in the Bible, but also in Egypt, by the way. They were encountered in Canaan, Numbers 1333, when the, when the uh, 12 spies went. The, the, when they came back, the, Joshua and Caleb had the good report. The other 10 guys said, hey, there's Nephilim in the land. That's the word they used. They were giants. We are like grasshoppers in their sight. That's not an exaggeration. They had reason to be terrified. Obviously, Joshua and Caleb had uh, faith in God. We're, you know, God's on our side, let's go. But uh, and it's easy to disparage the other 10 guys. You need to understand they had, on the one hand, some reason to be cautious. In Deuteronomy 3, in Joshua 12, we encounter Og, the king of Bashan. He's the king of the giants, the Rephaim. Goliath, remember he had four brothers. That's why David picked up five stones when he crossed the brook. Why? He's ready for all five of those guys. By the way, what does the Golan Heights, Hebron, and the Gaza Strip have in common? In the news day all the time, right? These are the areas that Joshua failed to exterminate the Rephaim. The word Rephaim means the dead, the walking dead. Isaiah 26, 14 says they cannot be resurrected. These are strange creatures. And uh, it's interesting if you study the strongholds uh, that um, they failed to defeat, you'll notice that those same regions are the territories, the so-called West Bank, that are in dispute today. I think that's fascinating. Joshua's, not Joshua, but his, his descendants failed to deal with these issues, and they plagued them to this very day. The Golan was called uh, Bashan, and it says, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, in Psalm 22, verse 12, he says a strange thing, says, many bulls have compassed me, strong bulls of Bashan have beset me around. I have no idea what that means, but I suspect he's not talking about cattle. 
I think he's talking about some kind of demon oppression that's involved. I think it's a, a, a solution to the Raphaim. Let's talk a little bit about the nature of angels, because that's really the root of this problem. You notice, we learn a lot about angels by looking at the Bible. They always appear in human form. They look human. In fact, many people entertain them unawares, we find out. Sodom and Gomorrah, the homosexuals were after them. That tells you something. I don't want to be too graphic here. And at the resurrection, and at the ascension, there's always a pair of angels. And they're like men. They look like men standing here. They spoke. They took men by the hand. They ate meals with them. They're capable of direct physical combat. The Passover in Egypt was by a death angel. In, in the book of... Uh, Second Kings, uh, slaughter of the 185,000 Syrians. One angel after night slaughters 185,000 Syrians. You don't mess around with angels. Now, and they don't marry in heaven. Now that, that, that's a phrase. But by the way, I'm making a contrast here. With the demons of the New Testament are not like this. They apparently are powerless, except to the extent they. Oh, sorry, guys. That's the first time that's happened. <laughs> Let's go ahead and pause real quick. Body, some person. Let's go back. Not like angels. Don't think. Distinguish between the angel, fallen angels, the bad guys, and the demons. The demons apparently are disembodied spirits looking for embodiment. The angels don't have that problem. They apparently can materialize all the way through the scripture. We see them anyway. We do know they don't marry. Can, the question is: Can angels have sex? The scripture says no. No, it doesn't say that. Jesus says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God. He's talking about uh, 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 that in a resurrection bodies, we don't have sex because we're immortal. There is no procreation. There is no uh, reproduction issue. And angels, in, he's talking here about the angels of God in heaven. I would not speculate on the technologies available to an angel who falls. And that's what we're really dealing with here. Now, there's a strange word that gets overlooked by the scholars um, in general, and I've participated in some translation issues on this very issue. There's a word called Oketerion, and it refers to the body as the dwelling place for the spirit. It only occurs twice in the scripture, and it's very interesting where it does. It occurs in Jude 6, and it's the word that describes what the fallen angels disrobed from. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 2, it speaks of, it alludes to the heavenly body that you and I as believers aspire to be clothed in. Same word. Okay, I think it's a technical term that's overlooked by the scholars. In uh, Jude 6 and 7, it says, When the angels which kept out their first estate left their own habitation. That word habitation is Ogaterion. They disrobed from the, 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 the body that they were given to indulge in this mischief. Genesis 6. The angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness in the judgment of that great day. Even in Sodom and Gomorrah, so we went through that before. Word is Ogaterian. In 2 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2, Paul tells the Corinthians, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And for this we groan, earnestly desiring to be closed upon with our house which is from heaven. The word translated house is Ocaterion. That which those angels abandon is what we aspire to. That kind of, that kind of a uh, uh, habit, if you will. 
Well, let's move on. The coming cosmic deception, what's the biggest lie of all? You know, it's interesting. This all started back in Genesis 3. When God declared war on Satan, he says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. And he shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Everybody, and from this verse, we get one of the messianic titles of Christ, the seed of the woman. What many people overlook, there's two seeds mentioned here. The other seed is the seed of the serpent. And so we have the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the serpent, we find all kinds of idioms, the red dragon in, in, in Revelation 12, the coming world leader, as I sometimes call him, the false prophet in Revelation 13. These forces are still at work and behind the world powers today. Check out Daniel 10 and really understand what's going on there. All of us have studied Daniel 2 and the, the sequence of nations, or empires I should say, that were re-echoed in Daniel 7, the winged lion, bear on one side, the leopard, the terrible beast, the tennis, uh, again, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome 1 and 2. Uh, we've been through that in our prophetic studies. And most people recognize the iron iron mixed with clay is, is the Roman Empire. Don't confuse that with Western Europe. The Roman Empire, uh, part one and part two. Well, we live in a world, what's, what's going on in this world? There's a new world order, a world without borders is the concept. The end of the independent nation state. Multiculturalism is in. Check your faith at the door. We're going to all compromise. This is all heading for a centralized socialistic government. And there are a couple of forcing functions. Every freedom-loving per person considers this an anathema, except the problem is there's no way to avoid it. Nuclear proliferation is part of it. We're on the threshold right now of nuclear war because of this very issue. But there's another forcing function that nobody talks about. The possibility, ultimately, not yet, but coming as cosmic threat of some kind. You say, Chuck, that's way out. That's fringe stuff. Really? Um, Let's talk about the miry clay. You know, Daniel, in Daniel's famous vision of the metal, multi-metal image, the last phase was, of course, the iron mixed with clay, the ten toes. What is miry clay? Miry clay is clay made from mire or dust, if you will. And everybody talks about the, 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 the clay in, in, in the ten toes of Daniel's imagery. No one, I'm, I'm guilty too, paid any attention to Daniel's explanation of it. Daniel chapter 2, verse 43, he's explaining the whole thing. He's interpreting this vision for you. When he gets to this, verse 43, he says, Whereas thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave to one another, and so on. You know, that phrase, I read that a hundred times over the last 30 years. It didn't hit me until uh, this in-depth study. Um, they, the miry clay refers to a they. It's a personal pronoun. They shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. In order to mingle themselves with the seed of men, they have to be something other than the seed of men. Or it makes no grammatical or, or logical sense. So the they that are going to do the mingling are not the seed of men. Oh, could this be a hint of some mischief in the end times analogous to the uh, uh, mischief in Genesis 6? I think so. They shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. Boy, there it stares, it stares. Anyway, uh, but the coming great deception, Jesus opens and closes his Matthew 24 thing. He says, there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that, that if it were possible, they should deceive the very elect. What's going to protect you? Your intellectual background? Your knowledge of physics? No way. No way. If it were possible, it would deceive the very elect. The only thing, the only thing that can save you from this deception is your spiritual condition by being in Christ. They shall show great signs and wonders. They're going to do things that are going to uh, uh, violate apparent, our apparent knowledge of reality. We 
get to Second Thessalonians, Paul in, in, in Second Thessalonians 2 says a lot to say about this. He says, the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now hinders will hinder until he be taken out of the way. And then shall the wicked one be revealed whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. The wicked one is going to do miracles. Be prepared for some political leader to raise people from the dead. We're not ready for that. The mystery of, see, I think the restrainer is restraining far more than you and I have any idea. Now, where does this wicked one come from? It surprises many to realize the scripture tells us. In Revelation 11 and Revelation 17, Revelation 11, verse 7, And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and shall overcome them and kill them. Where is this guy coming from? From out of the abuso. So he's not just some political leader that happens to be kind of gifted. No, this guy is empowered by Satan himself. And he's coming out of the abuso himself. You get to Revelation 17. The beast that thou sawest was and is not shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, go into perdition, and they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names are not written in the book of life. The only thing that can protect you from all of this is your position in Christ. Amen. And you know, beloved, I'm going to go ahead and stop it right there because I think he ended it on the perfect note being the only thing at all, the only thing at all that will save you is Jesus Christ himself and your relationship with him and your faith in him. And this is why there are people um, literally on fire to spread the truth right now. You know, the only thing we have to gain is your company in heaven. We want you to come with us, beloved. We want you to wake up. The path is narrow. And... You wouldn't believe how many church-going Christians have no idea what I'm talking about when I say Nephilim and the fallen ones and anything that I'm talking about now. I didn't even know it either, right? Because they don't teach you these things in mainstream churches. The Bible talking about the church is referring to the body of Christ, believers, followers of Jesus Christ, the truth, the way, and the life. He died for you on the cross to atone for your sins was buried and on the third day he rose and he's in heaven preparing a place for you if it were not so he would not have said so scripture is real beloved they've been hiding it from us for quite some time because of the times that we're in they've been I, I do believe that generation by generation they get rid of the truth right they mix it with lies and uh, giants I, I encourage you guys to look up giants. Uh, they existed in the 1800s. There was pictures of them, you know, and start paying attention to movies. There's some real stuff behind Space Jam. <laughs> I'm not saying that, you know, they're all playing basketball, but I'm saying that they are from a different world. They are giants and, you know, they're just, they're not called aliens. They're called Nephilim. And tomorrow we're going to go ahead and, or later if I get time, but maybe tomorrow, we're going to go ahead and do the last part of this. And we're going to dive down to Alistair Crawley and his connection to L. Ron Hubbard and Jack Parsons and NASA. This entire alien disclosure and how it actually coincides with um, just the great big lie. <laughs> Anyways, beloved, I do pray that you guys got something out of this. 
I pray you have a wonderful day and uh, God bless you. Until next time.